Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the drug overdose death crisis in British Columbia. The numbers keep going up, up, up. They're going in the wrong direction. About seven illicit drug overdose deaths a day now. And we've had a lot of government intervention here on harm reduction, including decriminalization of drug possession, safe supply. Is it working? We talked about this earlier this week on the show. Let's get another perspective on it now. My guest is Christina Gower. Christina is a registered psychiatric nurse. She works in a metro hospital emergency room where she provides mental health and addictions emergency care. Christina, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do. I I can't imagine what a day is like for you working in in a hospital ER room providing mental health and addictions Care. What, what is that like? What is, uh, what's a typical day like for you? Um, typical day, uh, very busy, um, increasing acuity over the past few years. Uh, of course, um, we've, since the NDP have come into, um, the government, they've pivoted a bit. We didn't used to deal so much in uh, the hospital with addictions and we do now. So it's really changed Mm. the dynamic. Uh, And what we're seeing is, um, well, every day it's, it's the same all over the province. We're seeing uh, people that are very sick and uh, we have lost a lot of people. We get to know our patients quite well over the years and we've lost many of them. Oh boy, that must be heartbreaking. I mean, you get to know people who show, who present in the emergency room several times and then you find out They've passed away. Is that is that what happens? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because we we build relationships with them. Um, you know, people with um, mental illness uh, often will have uh, addictions as a um, co concurrent disorder. So um, you know, and, and it affects them. Uh, you know, when they're unwell, obviously the judgment isn't there, and they don't know what they're taking always. And uh, neither does people without mental illness. So it's a very yeah. dangerous uh, thing to be doing. Yeah, like a, a co a concurrent disorder is an interesting descriptor there. So th- that means that a person who has mental illness and they've got a uh, substance abuse too, like addiction too. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Okay. Would you say it is getting? It's getting worse. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We're what getting kind? a lot of mixed mixed supply drugs where people are coming in. We're, we're getting a lot of youth um, that are using and uh, they're they're not getting what they think. They A lot of youth are trying to buy uh, like MDMA, ecstasy, that kind of thing. Uh, but they're getting uh, urine tested because they get very sick and they come into the hospital and we test them and we find out that they've got you know, uh, fentanyl and benzodiazepines and yeah, and, uh, all kinds of stuff mixed in there along with amphetamines. So, um, it's, it's uh, a lot of surprises for a lot of people and, um, a lot of risk. Yeah. People don't know what they're taking. They think they're taking a drug and then they're taking a completely different drug. Speaking to Christina Gower, Christina is a registered psychiatric nurse. She works in a Metro Vancouver hospital emergency room. Um, I'm really interested in your thoughts on some of the harm reduction measures that, uh, we're talking a lot about here in BC decriminalization of drug possession, uh, safe supply of drugs. So on safe supply, the idea is if people are going to use anyway, if they're dying from this, this toxic drug supply in the street, give them a legal pharmaceutical grade that is a drug that has been tested in a laboratory. So if they're going to use, 
at least they're not going to die from this uh, this drug. Now, I'm Christina, I'm really interested in what you think of that, that concept. Let me play a clip here for you. Earlier this week, my guest was Tom Wolf. He, Tom is a former drug user himself, and he's a big advocate for treatment and recovery. And he, he doesn't like safe supply. He thinks it's the wrong way to go. Here's what he told me, then I'll get your thoughts. I got addicted to a safe supply. I got addicted to a prescription of opioids, and that led mm-hmm. me into heroin and eventually fentanyl. So the answer to helping someone struggling addi- with addiction isn't to give them replacement drugs. It's not to give them more drugs. It's to provide them an opportunity to go to treatment and leave those drugs behind. Christina, what do you think of that? Um, yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you played that clip. It, it's interesting. Uh, there's some misunderstandings there and perhaps some bias. Um, about 60 percent of the people that are getting addicted to opioids did start with a prescription uh, uh, for pain. It's uh, a lot of uh, blue blue collar workers, uh, construction workers, people that get injured on the job and um, they end up uh, not having other adequate methods of treating their pain, such as access to physiotherapy, chiropractic, all those other things, and having ending up with chronic pain, uh, trying to work too many jobs and not being able to stop going to work. There's a lot of factors that involve that. And so they seek, uh, they get cut off at the doctor because the doctors will not continue to prescribe these. And then they will go to the street and, and purchase and then they're in uh, a lot more danger. So um, this gentleman, uh, that's how he started um but it it was it, it, i would argue that it's not safe supply that caused his addiction it was um his injury that was untreated yeah so you think okay safe supply is is the right way to go you think it can work oh it well it can and okay so there's it's a spectrum so uh, yeah. if you're looking at um uh where okay so i did some digging around last night uh in preparation for for this interview and um you know in the downtown East side, it's a little different than I, I live in the suburbs and I work in a hospital. So I'm not uh, working at Insight or, you know, at one of these places that dispenses. Um, no. So it, it, it works in several ways. The main, I think the main goal is to keep people alive. That's that yes. it's not necessarily to create abstinence, although that would be ideal. Um, but so, you know, the fellow that spoke, uh, Tom, he, you know, he was able to get clean and, and, uh, is able to have a sober living now. But, um, if it's not the goal of the person, then we try and meet them where they're at. We try to keep them alive. And, uh, one of the problems is, is that when you come into hospital to try and get help, uh, you, it, it could be several days wait and we can't necessarily, um, house you in the hospital until, uh, that bed is available for you to go and have detox. And even then you go to detox and, and you, you come out and you're feeling better, but you don't have a home to go to and you don't have a yeah. job to go to and you still have the, you know, the history of trauma or whatever is behind your addiction um, and all the trauma that's created through addiction, that process and being homeless and being assaulted and, and all the awful things that can happen out there. So it's a very complex, difficult process. And um, I think that the, the piece, one of the pieces uh, is harm reduction is a safe supply it just keeps people yeah. alive so that we can try and piece it back together speaking of christina gower talking about the overdose death rate there uh let me play another clip here for you for your thoughts and this is a this is an interview that just lives in my mind here that I, I can't forget it uh dr paxton bach who's an addictions doctor saint paul's hospital and we talked about his patients i suspect he's had some similar experiences that you have had christina and you know he has told me some stories about People who come to him who are addicted to drugs, he tries to help them. In some cases, he tells them, 
look, I'm ready to try and get clean. I, I'd like to get into detox. I would like to get into a treatment program. And then he has to tell them that there's nothing available except a waiting list. Let's have a listen to him here, then I'll get your thoughts. I see patients every day who are asking me if they can get into detox, and I'm putting them on a two- or three- or four-week wait list. That is an eternity for somebody who's continuing to use drugs every day. Are you aware of people who have died while waiting? Constantly. Constantly was his answer there. Are people who have died while waiting to get into treatment. So we, we talked a little bit about that already, Christina. What, what are you seeing out there for people who want treatment, who want detox, who want to get into program? Is there anything available? What are the waits like? Uh, it, it depends. It's the luck of the draw sometimes. Um, oh. Usually, you know, from hospital, we're usually able to get people to detox within a few days, maybe. It's not necessarily weeks, but... Um, uh, the per- we don't we can't keep patients that long in the hospital like yeah. we can't they don't meet they no longer meet the criteria and people that do meet the criteria need the beds so it's a very difficult thing and and when people leave the hospital they no longer um you know they they cave to their cravings or they they um uh you know they just can't cope with the cold weather or being uh, you know back around and they give they become hopeless and they give up and they and they start using again and it's that vicious cycle you know and and we can only just hope to capture people at the right moment we can when we can actually accommodate them long enough to get them a bed somewhere which is very few and far between christina thank you for the important work you do i know it's a very stressful job you have but boy it's an important one thank you for coming on today anytime mike thanks All right, let's talk about the Vancouver Yelp user with 400 negative reviews in Vancouver. This is an anonymous Yelp user looking at the user page here now. SC. SC is the anonymous username on Yelp. Now, you know what Yelp is, right? It's a business review website. They've got a mobile app, and users can go on there. They can post a review about a restaurant or a cafe or a bit, basically any kind of business. I mean, you could go on there and review a, an auto shop or pair shop, but restaurants and cafes, bakeries, they, of course, come in for a lot of reviews on Yelp. So taking a look at these particular Yelp reviews, these are scathing absolutely scathing reviews most of these 400 reviews are one star one star reviews that is the lowest you can go and a lot of people have been commenting on this particular red uh yelp user on a very popular reddit thread on the vancouver subreddit that's where i heard about it so just scrolling through some of the reviews here uh, the reviewer writes that she was disappointed with her latte at a local Starbucks. When the barista apologized, she smiled with her eyes closed. The user was unhappy about that. A review of a takeout bakery. There was a mosquito flying inside the bag of the almond cranberry bun. This was shocking. How could a mosquito... Get inside the bag. Did the employee miss the mosquito during the packaging? One star. Negative review. Another one star review of a bakery in Richmond here. They recently changed the staff from young ladies to older women who looked sad and uninviting. All right, let's discuss it now with Ian Tostenson, president, BC Restaurant Association. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, good to talk to you. Okay, there's an unhappy customer here. 
Uh, four hundred yeah. reviews. A couple. Some of the reviews are like two stars, but most of them are one star. Ian, can this be bad for a restaurant? Like when a restaurant gets a bad review on Yelp, I mean that's just that's just an everyday normal thing doing business in a restaurant, I guess, right? But can it be particularly um, damaging? Yeah, it does. This guy, whoever this person is, sounds like they're a little bit. They got a bit of a problem going on here because four hundred. Yeah. I mean uh, that. You know, that seems to me that someone's. I won't go there because he'll go after me or she. Um, but, you know, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's Yelp, there's Google, there's TripAdvisor, there is all, you know, open table. There's all these places. And so what we're having to do now, all business is having to do is be on top of this. And so it's not a bad thing. I mean, in, in one way, I mean, uh, the, these um, um, people being able to, uh, to pass on their feelings it works good. So, I mean, what we're trying to do is, is an industry is, you know, we make sure we get the feedback. If it's honest feedback, it gives the owner of the restaurant a chance to, to make the changes, phone the customer and, and fix the feedback. So we're saying yeah. to people, if you really feel that bad, call the restaurant. You don't have to put it online because you're right, Mike. If you get a one star rating, yeah. uh, it takes you a long time to get back to, you know, your four or five star rating that you want to have. The average, and right? It brings your average it down. Yeah. Totally brings it down. Yeah. And a lot of people, they, they look towards these, you know, uh, to look to, like it was someone saying this morning to me, like, you know, you've got people that are traveling and, um, you know, they're going on vacation, they come to Vancouver, they don't know the restaurants and they see these bad, um, um, uh, people going after their, um, uh, restaurants and they go, do yeah. I want to go there? So it's it's a tough problem, and so then the other thing that it forces us to do with all these reviews is that you know industry really has to pay attention to it. So they've got to be totally organized. They've got to be totally watching their reputation, dealing with it. They've got to be totally honest about if there's a problem, is is being reaching out and trying to solve it. But it's just another thing that business has to do because if you don't, um, what you're talking about is it be terribly uh, terrible for the businesses. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the Reddit discussion on this topic is, is quite entertaining because a lot of people have gone down a rabbit hole and just reading, spending hours reading these hundreds of negative reviews. Just looking at yep. another one here of of a gelato place. One of the spoons broke when we tried to scoop the gelato. This was shocking and scary because we might hurt ourselves and bleed. Uh, she's got a few. She's had a few problems with. Um, with spoons here, or takeout cutlery at the Urban Fair on Granville Island, ordered some chicken strips. The wooden takeout spoon was not a spoon. It was flat. This was useless and shocking. One star. All, all these reviews are like one star. The lowest you can go. Let's listen to a, a clip here. Here's a local restaurant uh, in Arizona, Ian who got some bad Yelp reviews and, and decided to fight back. This, uh, this report's from CBS News in Arizona. Have a listen. We live in a day and age where so many people decide that they're a professional reviewer online. And one restaurant decided enough is enough. Jay is tired of the keyboard commandos, the negative Nancys. Some folks agree. I just feel like they're negative people that you can't please. They go on to vent because nobody else will listen to them. Yeah, so this guy in his restaurant in Arizona started posting uh, replies to any kind of negative review and getting into fights. Like, do you find, like, 
for restaurant owners here in BC and like how do they handle a negative review online? Would they typically post a, an explanation or a response or do yeah. you, or they ignore it? No, you've got to you've got to be proactive. You've got to be showing the, the rest of the public that you're you know that you do care about this. And what you'll see is that people um, um, in talking to a couple of restaurants about this, you'll see people say, you know what, that's not right, and they're going to come back on and they'll start giving their own positive review of the restaurants. And but it, it, you have to manage it. You just can't let it go. I was reading a story this morning about United Airlines uh, a few years back. There was a video of them removing a passenger in a, in a on a flight that was overbooked, and they let it go. And I, I don't think it was very good. And they lost. A, this is what according to the story, a billion dollars in their stock value because they didn't deal with it. And people just really so. It's so mm. important to do that. It's also important for businesses to, you know, if you go to a restaurant, you should get, if you make a reservation, you should get something back to restaurants and asking you for, can you give us a review here? Just click here, make it yes. really simple and encouraging people. And I encourage all the listeners to, you know, especially now is if you feel good about the place you went to is give them a positive, you know, what we can do is as a public is give a positive review and negate this kind of nonsense because this person that's doing this obviously get, uh, they've got other problems as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, right? I think there may be some other problems going on. Here's another uh, another restaurant owner fought back against negative Yelp reviews. Now, this is a guy who owns a, a pizza place in, in New Jersey, and he got some negative Yelp reviews. So what he did was he started asking people to deliberately post negative Yelp reviews. He actually wanted negative reviews. Let's listen to this. I'll get your thoughts. Co-owner Davide Certini began offering customers 25% off for posting a one-star review on Yelp. And as a result, business is booming. They've racked up eight pages of new reviews in less than 48 hours, most of them one-star ratings with snarky or positive comments, ranging from my food arrived before I wanted it to love the campaign and you've earned a new customer. In a way, I think it's really smart. It's guerrilla marketing. It's guerrilla marketing. So this guy said, if you post a one-star review, you get 25% off your order. So I guess that's kind of turning the tables, and it seemed to work out for for that guy. But, you know, that's an example of don't ignore it, right? It, it's So you got to deal with it. Your reputation's on the line here, correct? Got to deal with it. Uh, UBC um, uh, Business School were saying not a bad idea. Sometimes it hit it straight on, and uh, and sometimes negative reviews can work in your favor, but it depends on how well you want to handle it. And if you if you don't, like I said, if you don't don't address it, you're in trouble. But if you address it, most people go, you know what? I'm going to go there and help that business because this is wrong. And so it can work actually the other way. So I kind of that's kind of a cool story about now. Uh, now what about though? Now what about though? If someone has a legit bad experience mm. the food was not was not up to standard the service was inadequate you know people are people have the right to, to yeah. leave a real opinion and, and say what they think correct yeah and i think that's where you show the sincerity of a restaurant and that's why they have to be honest you know you write a review and say what's unhappy and stuff i mean i don't know why you just went phone the restaurant and talk to them but let's say you can't get through or whatever um yeah. you know, it's up to the up to the owner uh, up to that business to to respond to you to let them know, the public know how you want to handle it and that you've got a sense of, you know, apology and you're going to fix it and you're going to try to reach them and please give us a call. And people appreciate that. They see that as, gee, Mike's really concerned about his business here 
and he's reaching out to his customers that have had a bit of a bad experience. And we can, we like that, you know, that's important. So it gives you an opportunity as a business to show what your, what your real values are and that you do care and that you do recognize that not always are, is something going to go perfect all the time. There's going to be times when it doesn't. Yeah. But it's how do we handle that as an industry back to our guests? And I think that just shows, shows character uh, on our part if we do it possible, but you got to monitor it. And I feel sorry for a lot of small businesses. They're up against so much right now. Uh, it takes, it takes a fair amount of effort to make sure you do this. You just can't do it, you know, once a month, you got to be on this stuff all the time. And, uh, and that's just another pressure. All right. My guest is Ian Tostenson, BC Restaurant Association, talking about the Yelp user in Vancouver left 400 negative reviews of restaurants, bakeries, other businesses, too, in Vancouver. Let's take some phone calls. Debbie in Coquitlam. Hi, Debbie. Go ahead. Good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Some people are just chronic, chronic complainers. We have a friend who is embarrassing to eat out with because his idea of evening entertainment at a restaurant is to see how many times he can send the meal back without cause. So now our our expense, I'm sorry, our experience at at 99% of the restaurants in the lower mainland is that if something has gone wrong, and yes, somebody can have a bad day in the kitchen, 99% of them bend over backwards to make that experience right for you. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Thanks a lot for the call. Okay, sending the meal meal back. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess obviously you should do I guess you should do that if the meal is not adequate, but if you do it all the time. I mean, Ian, your thoughts. <laughs> I think Debbie should dump that pre- people as a friend. I mean, come Ooh. on. I mean, you know, you know, not just restaurants. Every business is trying to do their very best, especially right now. I mean, they're really going the extra effort. And for someone to sort of think that's cool, it's just not mm-hmm. on either. I mean, it just, it just, it just stupid. I, I, I just, you know, because I do know that a restaurant, if you, if you say, look, I'm not happy with this or this didn't work out, they're going to take care of you. That's their business. We're in sure. the hospitality business, right? Yeah. And, um, but just to be an, a, an annoying customer like that, I don't know what they're trying to prove. Maybe yeah. it's the same guys writing all these bad reviews. <laughs> it, could <laughs> be, it could be the same person. <laughs> Sally in Vancouver. Hi, Sally. Go ahead. How are you? Good. Hi, Ian. I know Ian, actually. Um, I spent my entire life uh, owning restaurants and um, from the 90s, early 90s, and sold my last one in 2020. And I can tell you that Ian is 100% right. What people write affects your business and your bottom line like you wouldn't believe. And there's so much going on right now for restaurants to be dealing with. And on top of that, to be fighting with um, your reputation when people leave stupid reviews that are meaningless. They have no idea. When you say that uh, it drags your rating down when you get a one star, it doesn't, like, it takes forever to get that, get rid of that one star. Um, I, my last restaurant, I worked so hard and my entire staff worked so hard. We went to number five on TripAdvisor. Um, it was number five when I sold it. And we were extremely proud of that. Um, mm-hmm. And it brought in a ton of business. It required responding to people, thanking people, attending to problems, all those kinds of things. Um, at the same time, when you had the negative ones, it was really disheartening. 
um, because people don't understand the effect that it has. Now, after I sold my restaurant, I'm not going to say which one, but we went from number five on TripAdvisor to number 2,800 and something. And that person that did buy my restaurant um, did not pay attention to his online presence. And what happened in the end was there was an extremely negative review that got posted that went viral and went on to TikTok and went on to all these places and all of a thousand comments and everybody chiming in. The restaurant was closed three weeks later. Wow. Yeah, boy. Wow. Wow. When you talk about an online reputation, yes, it's super annoying when people are idiots and write dumb stuff and then just give you a one star because they have no idea how much. And is it is it all anonymous largely? Like when you get a scathing review, is it is it do people have to put their name on it or are they anonymous complaints, Sally? Well, it depends. For like for Open Table, you would be able to reach out to that customer directly. Yeah. But for for something like. Um, you know, you're responding back a lot of the time, especially Yelp. You're responding back um, anonymously. You don't yes. know who said this. Do you think? Do you think um, people should be required to identify themselves if they're going to post your review? Absolutely. I mean, oh. if you say, do you want me to come to your business and and give you a review uh, about what you do on a daily basis? Like, restaurants are working really hard. Obviously, they want, they strive for five stars and to please their customers and do everything they can. I mean, if they don't, then that's a different story. But okay. for the people that are working super hard, it's this, people need to understand how brutal it is when they leave a dumb review that is not helpful. Sally, thank you for a great call. Uh, Ian, I appreciate your time. Do, what do you think of that? we got 30 seconds here. Do you think people should be required to post yeah, I, their names? I do. I have yeah. some accountability. In most cases, you can find out who they are. Um, if, you know, in a lot of cases, if you go to the companies that are doing the, the, the platforms and ask them, they don't take it off. They don't okay. get involved. It's really tough. So what I say to the listeners, thanks for all your support this year. And if you've got a good feeling about a restaurant, give it to them. Ian, thanks for coming on. Have a good break, uh, vacation. Thanks, Mike. All right, my next guest is Premier David Eby, and I'm very pleased you could join me here in the studio. Premier, thank you very much for coming in here this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. So, okay, so we're doing a little bit of a year-ender here, busy year for you. Would you say, looking back, would it seems like housing was the primary focus for your government. Would you agree with that? Was that, like, number one priority for you this year? Well, so many British Columbians are struggling with finding a decent place to live that they can afford. It's uh, it's very high on the priority list. And, uh, and Mike, you'll remember, we've known each other for a long time. I uh, I started my career working on housing issues. It's a, it's an issue that's close to my heart. I think uh, I think all British Columbians deserve a decent place to live, and, and it has absolutely been a big focus. From Airbnb, uh, reining that in and, uh, and opening up empty places uh, that were being underused for rental and, and reforming rules around zoning. Uh, we're uh, we're attacking it at all fronts. What is the measurable outcome you're looking for here? Is I remember when you were sworn in, and, and you said that you wanted people to be able to see and feel and realize change that your government was delivering. You're nodding because you remember that. That was a, a part of your speech that stuck in my mind. What would be the measurable here for success on housing that people will be able to see and feel and experience? Well, there's a, there's a few examples, Mike. So, you know, anytime you're in a housing crisis or any kind of crisis, there are always people who try to take advantage. And, uh, and so I, I hope people are seeing now uh, the beginning of us cracking down on the people who have really been 
uh, taking advantage in the housing system. We got the the flipping taxes coming. Uh, we've addressed some of the excesses around Airbnb. Uh, the unexplained wealth orders are starting to show up. People are buying property with no apparent legitimate source of money. Uh, beyond that, in terms of the Airbnb, people are seeing housing listings coming on. They used to be short-term rentals that are now long-term rentals, or they're seeing them being sold uh, so that families can actually buy them and afford to move in. And in terms of new supply, uh, my goal is uh, that people are going to be able to see uh, uh, groundbreaking on middle-income attainable housing using publicly owned uh, land, municipal, provincial, federal, indigenous, uh, that'll be actually attainable for families. Okay, let me ask you about that, because traditionally, if government's been involved in housing, we have like some social housing, like income-tested housing. I've heard you talk a few times about middle-income earners, right? You would like to see middle-class housing. Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly you're talking about right. the government building housing for yeah. middle for the middle class? This is, this is back to the future, Mike. Uh, uh, historically, government used to build... I mean, and, and you'll know people who won the lottery of getting a co-op space, or you'll know about wartime housing when government used to build uh, uh, housing for returning soldiers. Governments used to build middle-class housing that yeah. MERBs and MERPs for the people that are super uh, nerdy about housing. These are tax shelters that uh, enabled the construction of the West End, all those rental housing units in Vancouver. Oh, what do you what do you think about the argument though? And, and we'll hear this we hear this frequently from a guy like Pierre Polyev, for example, right at the federal level, who will say that government's the problem. The government should get out of the way and let the private sector build the housing. Let me play a clip here for you, very short here, and get your thoughts on this. I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. So this is Polyev saying what what he would do to incentivize housing at the local level. Here's what he has to say. I'll get your thoughts on it. I'm going to require big cities increase home building permits by 15% per year, or they will lose some of their federal infrastructure funds. Are you on board with that? He, he says this all the time, especially when it comes to Vancouver. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, it's, it's one piece. Absolutely. So you, you support him on that, do you? Well, that idea? We both see the same problem, which yeah. is that uh, the, the process to actually build a unit that somebody can afford takes so long. And that includes provincial permitting processes. We cut down those times. Uh, municipal processes, public hearings, uh, all of this time to build the housing that people need. That's why we introduced those five bills in the session. We're mm -hmm. actually doing in BC what he's suggesting, but not just that. So he also says he wants to sell off public land uh, that's owned by you and me. And the difference between us is that we think here, uh, using that public land, controlling that land cost and using it to build the housing uh, that the middle class is looking for, uh, and passing that uh, those savings on uh, is the way forward as well. Uh, we don't no. want to do just one thing. We're going at this at a bunch of different levels. Let me ask you about um, Kevin Falka and one of your primary opponents here. I heard you going after him in a speech uh, a few weeks ago, uh, re referencing his past as a, in the real estate development business before he got back into politics. What, what do you think? What's your point there? Are you saying that he was part of the problem back when he was a real estate developer? Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So the the reality is that Mr. Falcon and the B.C. Liberal government created this housing crisis that we're in, denied we were in a problem for many years. Uh, I was in those question periods. Uh, and from the opposition side, nope, no problem. Market will look after it. Don't worry, private sector. Then after creating the problem, moves into the private sector to benefit from it as a developer, then comes back to vote against housing reform. I, I can't imagine voting against the Airbnb reforms voting against the small-scale multi-unit housing, allowing someone who has a single-family home to break it into two units, uh, have a family member move in or sell it off to have a little bit uh, more money or rent it out to create rental housing. Why is he opposed to these things? Uh, because he is 
and consistently has been on the side of the investors and the speculators. That is the theme that runs through every well, single thing. He wants to get rid of the speculation and vacancy tax. Well, let me. I asked him about this uh, on the show recently, and here's what he had to say. I'm interested in your thoughts. Kevin Falcon. Imagine the horror of having somebody as premier that actually knows a thing or two about the housing sector. I mean, come on. Like, this is, they have never, they haven't spent, David Eby has not spent five minutes working in the private sector to understand how it works. What do you say to him? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, what are you going to say? I mean, he, he voted against reforms that members of his own party spoke out and said, what are you doing? Because these are actually going to bring on the housing supply that we need for people. The, the idea that row houses or townhomes should be banned uh, in certain neighborhoods, uh, that you can't have uh, more than one unit on a single family lot, uh, that it's okay for families to be competing with people who want, to, want to buy a condo to rent it out as a hotel room. Uh, I, I don't understand his perspective, and uh, and I hope British Columbians pay attention to what he says and what, he, what he's voting against. Speaking of Premier David Eby, let me ask you quickly about, time flies by here and there's so much I want to ask you, but uh, the political landscape in our province now is, is so up in the air. I mean, you've got the rise of this B.C. Conservative Party, which every single poll seems to come out now showing them in second place behind your party. And what do you think of that? Because with John Rustad, who talked to uh, you, he's speaking out about him, the B.C. conservative leader who's been a guest here on the show, too. What do you think of this B.C. conservative party? Well, it's a time when a lot of British Columbians um, are struggling with uh, rising interest rates and costs and challenges. And they're looking for uh, uh, parties that are going to show them how we're going to deal with these issues. How are we going to take them on? Uh, and so I think that people maybe are uh, are less attached to party labels and more looking for who's going to provide those kinds of solutions. Uh, for those looking to the B.C. Conservative Party, it's important to know what they've spoken out on. First of all, they're telling new arrivals to British Columbians, new Canadians, that the biggest threat to their kids are the teachers and librarians at schools, uh, that, that that is the biggest threat they face. Well, this, is their, this is their questioning of the SOGI program That's in right. Schools? You saw that guy driving his tractor down the highway, yeah. uh, ramming it into RCMP cars. This is the product of that kind of rhetoric. Yeah. And the exact people that are going to help those kids uh, that are new arrivals to British Columbia are the teachers and librarians uh, that the Conservative Party is turning them they're anti-vaccine. We're seeing Alberta's emergency rooms being overwhelmed with people with flu. Well, he said, well, hang on. I asked Rustad about that point specifically. He said he's not anti, anti-vaccine. He's anti-vaccine mandate is what he told me. Right. The, the mandate for healthcare he, workers he, to be he vaccinated. That that's what he's against. workers shouldn't be vaccinated. Correct. That, that's fine. Well, no, he's saying they should not have their, their employment cut if they're not vaccinated. That's right. So yeah. the public health officials say that that puts people in our hospitals at risk. And he thinks that's not true. We see what that product is in Alberta, which is that their their emergency rooms are overwhelmed with people with flu. The government reaching in to say, don't talk about flu or COVID in the vaccination campaigns. That's in the Globe and Mail today. And the impact on the ground for people trying to get health care of those kinds of attitudes. So finally, denying that climate change is real. I mean, how are we going to build in this province on the clean economy future that we're doing the 450 battery jobs in Maple Ridge, battery manufacturing jobs in Maple Ridge we just announced? How are we going to build for that if we have a government that says that climate change isn't real? Well, well, he, well hang on a sec. He doesn't say that climate change isn't oh, real. Sorry, human-caused climate change. No, he, he acknowledges human, human climate change as well. Mike, but you what know that's is, why he got kicked out of the BC Liberal Caucus, right? Is because he's a climate change. Doctor. I've interviewed him here on the show just a couple of weeks ago about this point, well, right? That's what, I'm glad to hear he's changed his mind. Well, you know, what, what he's saying, though, is that the things like the carbon tax in British Columbia uh, are not, is not going to solve climate change. And what we should do is adapt and use, and use uh, technology to adapt to climate change. Because there's nothing, I mean, what are the greenhouse gas emissions here in British Columbia? Like 0.3% of the global greenhouse gas emissions in the world? Right. So what are we going to do? Like if Polyev, right, 
go back to Paulia for a sec. Sure. If he becomes prime minister, he says he would cancel the federal carbon tax. Would you keep the carbon tax in BC? We'd go it alone. Is that what would happen? Well, we've had a carbon tax in BC for a long time, Mike. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, it has been an uh, an area where uh, Kevin Falcon from the BC United Party says is the proudest thing that he ever did. Uh, it is something that has enabled us to reduce emissions in BC, but uh, just as importantly, uh, it's funded really important work to reduce uh, pollution in our province and create jobs here. So uh, if he wants to get rid of the carbon tax, that's fine. But what we saw in Alberta was when the carbon tax was t- or when the tax was taken off gasoline that the oil and gas companies just increased their prices to pick up the difference. So the carbon tax is here to anyway. Carbon tax is here to stay in BC even if a federal government removed it federally. Well, people are Correct. really struggling with affordability. So if you want to support yeah. them with affordability and you reduce the gas tax and the oil companies pick it up anyway, all you've done is reduce um, the ability for government to support on affordability. So what we're going to do is support people, uh, find ways to make sure we're supporting them with the cost of daily lives. Just basic things like car insurance costs that uh, the BC United Party, BC Liberals refuse to take uh, down with lower hydro rates. Our hydro rates are lower than what they were projecting, uh, supporting people with the cost of housing and childcare. Speaking of hydro, we're importing 20% of our power this year. Does that concern you at a time when you're encouraging people to buy electric cars and to buy electric heat pumps? And we got to import 20% of our power, a lot of it generated by, by by burning fossil fuels in the United States got to be a concern for you yeah yeah it's a it's a huge where are we going to get all this power for all these electric cars and all these heat pumps yeah um great question mike and so uh one of the things that we've had to do is set up a task force with bc hydro to uh, kick them into gear and make sure that they're bringing on uh the clean energy that's going to help drive our economy uh it's a huge advantage for us we have massive economic proposals for our province specifically green hydrogen generation we have 19 different proposals for our province, some, some of which are very advanced, a company called POSCO out of Korea, a company called Fortescue out of Australia. These are huge metals companies that want to decarbonize their operations by producing hydrogen and BC jobs for British Columbians across the province. But we need to be able to generate the power. So we have our first call for power from BC Hydro in a generation, uh, 5,000 megawatts. Uh, we have uh, uh, a new transmission line up the northwest that we're working with First Nations on uh, to make sure we have that electrical capacity to decarbonize and create jobs across the province. Okay, let me ask you quickly about um, the overdose death rate here in British Columbia, just a segue to a different topic. Because we started that on the show today, and we talked about the continuing death rate up to seven days. The death rate's going in the wrong direction. We're coming up to the one-year anniversary of decriminalization of drug possession here in British Columbia. Do you, are, do you still support decriminalization? Do you still support safe supply when the results don't appear to be coming, coming through here? We still get so many people dying. Yeah, we doesn't seem to be working. We've got a huge, uh, a huge problem in the province here, and it's yeah. not just here. It's uh, it's in uh, cities and towns across North America, uh, but particularly on the west coast, we see it quite acutely. Uh, more than thirteen thousand people dead, Mike, since the beginning of the public health emergency. So what we're trying is uh, just about everything to try to keep people alive and get them into treatment. Um, and in particular, you know, I was at the launch of the new St. Paul's Road to Recovery beds. 94 people have already been through this seamless care from emergency room into detox, into treatment, all covered by the same physician all the way through. They don't have to go somewhere else. They don't have to call a number. Uh, There's a woman uh, who went through that program uh, from the downtown east side. She's back in her home community, an Indigenous woman, uh, back on the road to recovery. These are the uh, ways that we're going to get people uh, moving forward. But it also means doing things differently. So you saw us bring forward the legislation about uh, banning uh, public drug use in parks and business uh, storefronts. And I, I spoke to and so I spoke to an emergency room nurse this morning, the first guest on the show this morning, who said that she has seen a lot of people die while 
uh, drug addict people who are addicted to drugs die while waiting for treatment. Yeah, they can't get into detox. They can't get into treatment. That's why uh, the we put a billion dollars in the budget to expand yeah. treatment across the province. We're working with the Canadian Mental Health Association uh, on a hundred additional beds. We've got the uh, ninety beds underway at the Road to Recovery Center that are operating right now, uh, and uh, and we're going to have to continue to expand that infrastructure because uh, it is a massive crisis and a growing crisis. People need that treatment and support. Okay, I've got lots more to talk to you about, but we're out of time, and I know you've got a busy day with a whole bunch of interviews scheduled, so thank you for coming in. Yeah, I appreciate it. Mike, have a Merry Christmas. And thank you. And all your listeners, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. 